0: Father, we bow our heads before you, and we ask, God, that you would help the song that we just heard be, be just really branded on our hearts, that we really would rather have Jesus than anything, whether it be silver or gold or the praises of men or health or comfort. God, we want to be righteous in your sight, and that's only possible through the imputed righteousness of Christ, living by faith, living by repentance. And as we live as Christians, we want to be a praying church, God. We don't want to be those that look at prayer as something that others do. We want prayer to be something we do every moment of every day as we learn about this secret weapon, if you will, of prayer that we have in our bestowal, but sometimes we rarely use it. And So today, God, I pray that you would convict us and that you would encourage us and that you would remind us and that you would just bless us to be able to be men and women pray. It's in Jesus' name we offer this prayer to you. Amen. Well, in order to win, most leaders have something up their sleeve to give them the upper hand in battle. It could be a trick play in a football game. It could be a brand new strategy in a basketball game. It could be bringing in the pitcher that nobody knows about from the bullpen in a baseball game. Every coach needs a secret weapon to give him the edge in a really close game. The same is true in the world of business. It could be the merging of two companies. It could be hiring a well-known, established CEO. It could be launching an ingenious marketing campaign that will really catapult your company into a greater income, and that way you'll beat the rest of the competition. When you talk about secret weapons, look no further than Adolf Hitler in World War II, who demanded that a new weapon would be made that would pierce the French lines of defense. And so the Germans immediately began to create the largest gun known to man up to that time and even since. It was called the Gustav gun. According to a top secret weapons documentary, German steelmaker and arms manufacturer, Frederick Krupp, had his incredible weapon ready for war in 1941. The four-story, 155-foot-long cannon, which weighed 1,350 tons, shot 10,000-pound shells from its mammoth 98-foot bore. In the spring of 1942, the Gustav gun made its debut in the siege of Sevastopol, a city located in the Crimean Peninsula the 31-inch barrel gun fired 300 shells on this Crimean city. Needless to say, this secret weapon, the Gustav gun, had a huge impact on this decisive battle in favor for the Germans. But as the Nazis would soon find out, however, the ostentatious gun had some serious disadvantages. Its size made it an easy target for Allied bombers flying overhead. Its weight meant that it could be transported only via a costly specialized railway, which the Nazis had to build in advance. It required a crew of 2,000 men to operate. The five-part gun took four days to assemble in the field and over an hour to calibrate for a single shot. It could only fire 14 rounds a day. And so within a year... The Nazis discontinued the Gustav gun, and eventually the Allied forces scrapped the massive weapon. The Gustav gun, which was supposed to be Hitler's secret weapon to lead Germany to victory, turned out to be a disaster simply because there were more disadvantages than advantages. As a Christian soldier, we belong to the army of God, and you all possess a secret weapon. And unlike the Gustav gun, this weapon was not created by man, but created by God. This weapon has no disadvantages. This weapon can never be submarine by the enemy and does not require a crew of 2,000 men to operate. This weapon does not require four days to assemble. And you can fire this weapon every day, every hour, every minute. And you'll never run out of ammo. What is the secret weapon? Well, it's really no secret. I'm talking about what Gloria is talking about. We're talking about prayer this morning, right? We're talking about prayer, which is available to every Christian and gives you immediate access to your commanding officer. Prayer is a surefire way to bring you into victory, even if your circumstances don't change. Prayer is the way to recalibrate your Christian life to total dependence on God. Prayer is not only retaliation. Prayer is a confrontation of your problem. It is a confession of your sin. It is a complete confidence on God. According to one commentary, quote, Prayer is the energy that enables the Christian soldier to wear the armor and to wield the sword. We cannot fight the battle in our own power, no matter how strong or talented we think we are. When Amalek attacked Israel, Moses went to the mountaintop to pray, while Joshua used the sword down in the valley. It took both to defeat Israel. Amalek, Moses' intercession on the mountain, and Joshua's use of the sword in the valley. Prayer is the power for victory, but but not just any kind of prayer. Paul tells us how to pray if we want to defeat Satan. So this morning, I want to give you four headings that will teach you how to pray strategically, how to pray consistently, and how to pray persistently until Christ comes back. This is what many people call the four alls of prayer. Look again at verse eighteen and you 'll see those four alls praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and so let 's start off with praying at all times in your first heading, again, if you are taking notes, you see it there in the outline we 're talking about the frequency of prayer. The frequency of prayer, or the idea again of verse 18, of praying at all times in the Spirit. And so if you are taking notes, your first blank is this. We need to be learning about what the Bible teaches about praying in the morning. Praying in the morning. If we're going to pray at all times, then we need to start when we get up, right? And the Bible has plenty to say about praying in the morning. The verb for praying is given 85 times in the New Testament. Nineteen times it is used by the Apostle Paul. And believe it or not, this is the only time the word prayer is used as a verb in the entire book of Ephesians. The famous prayers of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and again in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, are eloquent prayers indeed. But the verb for prayer is not supplied. To pray means to petition or to intercede. In other words, prayer in its most basic sense is to ask something of God for either yourself or for someone else. It was John Bunyan who wrote in Pilgrim's Progress. He called this weapon, if you remember, all prayer, thus giving it a memorable designation. And He defines prayer as this, quote, a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ, in the strength of the assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to the Word of God, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. And so as we look at the four alls of prayer, we must first see that we should be praying all throughout the day. Now, there's been a lot of preachers who preached a whole lot of messages about praying in the morning, and I think that's good, but you just need to know, excuse me, that there's more times of the day to pray. But first, let's look at some of these verses that talk about praying in the morning. You may already be thinking, well, Adam, I'm not really a morning person, so I don't really like the idea of you starting off this message, making me feel convicted that I don't do a really good time praying in the morning. Well, let me just start off by saying, just pray when you get up. I mean, as soon as your eyes... Become open and you get out of the bed and you begin to think about what's going on that day. At least you could maybe offer a prayer to God. For David prayed in Psalm 5, verse 3 O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So David likes to start off his day in prayer. The sons of Korah cry out in prayer in Psalm 88. But I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning my prayer comes before you. It's in Psalm 90, which is a psalm written by Moses. In fact, Psalm 90 verse 1 says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, in verse 14 where he writes this, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's almost as if Moses is saying, fill me up, Lord, in the morning with the satisfaction of the spirit of the living God so that throughout this day I'll be satisfied all day long. Even if you're not big on praying in the morning, it's impossible to get going very far in your day without offering a prayer to God if you're a Christian minded Christian. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, but we've got to uh, make sure we understand. We've got to be minded, mindful of prayer here. The idea is that if you're a Christian, you can't help but to pray to God through the day. David, again, in Psalm 143 and verse 8 says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. We see the ultimate example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had a prayer life, and he also prayed early in the morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it is still dark. Now, if Jesus was living in Southern California in the summer, we're talking about getting up between 4 and 5 a.m. Because the sun comes up here so early. Before the sun came up, it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Again, you say, Adam, I'm just not a morning person. And let me just remind you, just pray when you get up. If you don't have 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes of prayer, I just think it would still be better for you to say, you know what, I still need to offer something to God. I don't want to be Mr. Grumpy Pants every morning when I get up until I kick into prayer in the midday or at the end of the day. When I really start to pray, you better be offering some type of prayer in the morning. Stop being so selfish. Start your day off being satisfied with God from the time you wake up. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm not typically thinking about others. I'm typically thinking about me. What am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to wear today? What do I have to do today? How can I get out the door as soon as possible? I'm not usually thinking about how could I pray for somebody else? How could I serve somebody else? See, the the idea of getting up and getting out to work with no prayer is a selfish mindset. And if you and I want to give to others, sometimes the best thing you can give is offer an intercessory prayer on behalf of your wife and your children and your boss and your co-workers and your family and your church and your small group in a way that would just constantly be bringing them before the Father. Not only should we be praying in the morning, but we should also be praying in the day That's your next blank, praying in the day. And David demonstrates this in Psalm uh, 55, 7. I think the notes there say Isaiah 55, 7. So you can correct that if you want. Psalm 55, 17, rather. Psalm 55, 17 says this, evening and morning and noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. And so when King Darius, a little bit later, forbid Daniel to pray while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. You remember what Daniel did. He still prayed three times a day, as was his habit, Daniel 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God he had done as he had done previously. In Acts, we see Peter and John praying during the day. Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at that hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The Hebrew calendar starts at 6 a.m., so the ninth hour would have most likely been 3 p.m. in the afternoon. They're praying in the afternoon. The same thing with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God Come in and say to him, Cornelius. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Again, we see example after example after example of not only praying in the morning, but praying at noon and praying in the afternoon. And so we've got prayer, prayer covered for the morning time, for the noon and afternoon time. How about the evening? See in your outline, praying in the evening. The psalmist writes in Psalm 92. Verse 2, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. David writes in Psalm 141, verse 2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. We read of Jesus in Matthew 14:23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. I don't know about you this morning, but if I'd had a long day of ministry as Jesus had on many accounts, I don't think I would be thinking about a significant prayer time at night. If you've had a lot of company over, finally they leave, I'm usually thinking about cleaning up, sitting down, going to bed. And yet we see here an emphasis of even in a busy day of ministry and all through the day, we have to have times of prayer where we get alone by ourselves before God. On the night Jesus was taken into custody before His crucifixion, when He, when he was about to, to be crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, He went there to pray. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and He said to His disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And you may say, well, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm not Jesus. I can't pray like that. That's not humanly possible for me to pray before the sun comes up all through the day, then again at night when you're exhausted. I'm just not that way. That's the supernatural gift that Jesus must have had as being the second person of the Trinity, God, very God. That's why I think it's important for us to read Christian biographies, which can help encourage us and challenge us. And on the idea of prayer, I've never been challenged maybe as much as I have by the biography of Hudson Taylor, entitled Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, where we read this, quote, On his last journey through China with his son and daughter-in-law, they traveled month after month through northern China by cart and by wheelbarrow. The inns they stayed in by night offered only the crudest accommodations. Often, when there would be only one large room for everyone spending the night in that inn, his children would screen off a portion of the room for their father with curtains of some sort. Then... After everyone was asleep, they would be awakened to the sound of a match striking and see a flicker of candlelight, which told them Hudson was awake and reading from his Bible. From 2 a.m. until 4 a.m. was his usual prayer time, the time he could count on being undisturbed in prayer. And that flicker of candlelight said more to his children about prayer than anything they had ever read or heard on the subject. I'm just saying, it doesn't take Jesus to be a mighty prayer warrior. It just takes a Christian who's totally dependent on the Lord to be a disciple of prayer. And while you may or may not choose to get up between 2 to 4 a.m., I'm just simply saying there are creative ways that you can find a place to get away where you can have time alone with God in prayer. And most of us in America have such busy schedules, we've scheduled prayer out. And it ought not be that way. And so let me just ask you, parents, how are you doing in setting an example for your own kids in prayer? Do you pray together as a family? Husband, do you pray with your wife? Do you, do you pray in your small groups? Are you praying with Christian friends when they come over and spend a little time at the house? Do you just stop and pause a few minutes before they leave and offer prayers to the Lord together? We cannot keep assuming that somehow prayer is being done by somebody somewhere. We all need to be praying. And again, I know this can kind of feel a little guilt-ridden. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to make you be godly. I'm trying to invite you into a relationship with God that longs to call out to Him in prayer. This is what this all is about. We're praying at all times here. Your next blank. Praying at all times. That's what we're discussing in the morning and in the evening and in the afternoon. During the Passion Week, Jesus' final week before the crucifixion, He said this in Luke 21, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things, that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. In Acts, we read about the day of Pentecost. Do you want to know how the early church prayed? In Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Acts 10, again, Cornelius prayed continually to God. Romans 12, 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. We read in Colossians continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians, maybe the most famous verse on prayer outside of the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer in the New Testament would be 1 Thess 517, pray continually, right? Pray without ceasing. Again, how could this possibly be done? How could you always be praying at all times? Well, I appreciate what Well-known pastor John MacArthur says about this, if you've ever heard him teach, it doesn't take long before you've maybe heard him talk about prayer as being a form of God consciousness. You're simply aware every moment of every day of who you are and who God is. And whether it's done specifically or whether it's done kind of in in a sense of just relating to Him, you're constantly thinking about God and reaching out to Him and you're considering what His Word says and you're considering how He would want you to respond in any situation and you're considering what you should be saying or what you should be thinking or what you should be doing right now for the glory of God. I appreciate that emphasis. It doesn't just mean it's the five minutes that you get alone. It's really all through the day. It's prayer. It's like breathing. It's in and out. You're constantly aware of God and your need for Him. And you're calling out to Him to help you in your situation and to be magnified in your circumstances and to change your heart. Well, before we move on to the second all of prayer, we must take a moment and address this prepositional phrase there, at least in the ESV, its position right here, where it says that we ought to be praying at all times in the Spirit. That's your next blank, praying in the Spirit. What in the world does that mean, praying in the Spirit? Well, as you might imagine, charismatics believe this verse, for some reason, means praying in tongues, Why they say that is because they say, well, any time you see anything about the Holy Spirit, there must be something looped in there about speaking in tongues. And so they would say that praying in the Spirit means praying in tongues, like praying in another language. And most charismatics don't see that as being a true language, like German or French or Hindi, but rather being a heavenly language, being something that cannot be comprehended. And I just want you to know the Bible nowhere teaches anything about praying in any tongue. When it says, pray in the Holy Spirit here, this is the same phrase given in Jude chapter 20, or excuse me, chapter, there's only one chapter in Jude, right? Verse 20, verse 20, where it says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, in the context in Ephesians, nothing about spiritual gifts, nothing about praying in tongues. In fact, speaking in tongues isn't mentioned in Ephesians. It's same thing in Jude. The context of Jude is not about spiritual gifts, but rather exposing false teachers and calling them out as wolves in sheep's clothing. And in order to know what God's Word says, you need to be praying in the Spirit. And so I think maybe the best place to go to to get a better understanding of what it means to pray in the Spirit might even be Romans 8 turn there with me if you'd like Romans 8:15 and 16 I think gives us a little bit more of a of a concrete example of what it means to pray in the spirit Romans 8:15 and 16 for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father If you want to pray in the Holy Spirit, pray as a saved individual and call out to God with intimacy in the sense of you can reach out to Him as Abba Father. That's an example of a Holy Spirit-led prayer. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So there's great assurance of praying in the Spirit as you cry out to Abba Father. This has more to do with the Spirit's role in prayer in our life and how that looks, not only this, but a couple of verses later, there in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27, another passage used in context with this kind of conversation would be this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, a charismatic would see that passage and say, see there, they're praying in tongues. They're praying with groanings, and there's no words, and that's coming out like tongues. Well, first of all, the word tongues isn't used here. Second of all, it's not you praying. That's the Holy Spirit praying. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit praying in you or through you. It says the Holy Spirit is praying for you. He's interceding for you. You ought to know how to pray, verse 26 says. But if you don't know how you ought to pray, trust that the Spirit himself is interceding for you. And in verse 27, and he who searches the hearts, or he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I believe, according to Romans 8 27, it means to pray in accordance with the will of God. So, you could say praying in the Spirit and praying in the name of Christ or in the will of God is all the same thing. It's the same reference of praying prayers that are given to us by God through His Word that are accented through the Holy Spirit, moving our hearts to pray in the Spirit is to pray in the name of Christ. It's to pray in the will of God. The will of God is the Word of God. So we know God's will because it's revealed to us by God's Word, and that is what we're to pray. We're to be praying through scripture. And so anytime you think about, well, what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Just think about what well, it means to pray in accordance with God's will, which is exactly what Jesus says in John 14:13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. John 15:16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you other references as well. Again, talking about praying in the name of Jesus. So praying in the Holy Spirit is the exact same thing as praying in Jesus' name. And so in these verses, we see that praying in the Spirit and praying in Jesus' name are the same thing, the same thing. And so as long as we're talking about this, we might as also add here that prayer is not a spiritual gift. It's not, it's not like somebody has the gift of prayer, like some people have the gift of teaching, the gift of helps, the gift of mercy, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge. Some of those gifts have ceased, even the gift of tongues. Some have ceased, some continue permanently. But the idea is prayer is nowhere listed as if some, some of you are given the gift of prayer and some of you are not, which is the excuse most of us like to make. Well, I just don't have that gift of prayer. Like, you know, sister so-and-so and and brother so-and-so, he prays a lot. He's a prayer warrior. He's got a gift. I didn't get that gift. Sorry, Lord. I just check in and check out within a minute. Under a minute, I'm in and out. But somebody else has the gift of prayer. Prayer is not a spiritual gift. Prayer is a spiritual privilege. It is a spiritual responsibility. It is a spiritual command. It is a spiritual discipline. It is something that God calls all men and women, boys and girls, to pray. If we're not praying, then we're not really bearing fruit of the Christian life. It's part of who we are. We are prayer warriors. The second all of prayer, maybe we'll just hit part of this one and we'll be done here with communion in a moment, but the second all of prayer is this, the variety of prayer the variety of prayer. Notice there in verse 18 again, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so when Paul writes with all prayer and supplication, or as it says in the NASB, with all prayer and petition, he's talking about all types of prayers. Just like you have different genres of literature, you have different genres of prayer. You have different types of things that you want to pray for and ways you want to approach God in prayer. And so, at the expense of telling you something you already know, I want to remind you of one of the best known, and I believe probably my favorite acronym for prayer would simply be ACTS. I think it's helpful, simple, but helpful. So, A there in your outline is ACT, Adoration. A for ACTS, right? We're talking about adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So, adoration in First Samuel. Hannah explodes with prayer of adoration after God answered her prayer by giving her a son, right? Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. David combined supplication with adoration in Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. David is simply stunned by the beauty of the living God, and he desires to spend time in the temple with God, communing with the Almighty. Psalm 103, again written by David. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We should spend a time. I believe in prayer adoring our great God, just like it is a joy for me to adore my wife and to tell her how beautiful she is and how well-dressed she might be or how much I appreciate what she does in our home or how beautiful she sings or how beautiful she takes care of the kids. I love the way she changes diapers. She gets it done. I'm so thankful, right? And it should be easy for me. I don't say those things as often as I should, but it should be easy for me to adore my wife and tell her, I love you, and I thank God for you, and you're so amazing. You're unbelievable. And so I think there's something about prayer that ought to just be a passion of ours to tell God about himself and his beauty and all of his attributes, that we should just go off for days telling God about who he is adoring him. There's also confession after adoring God, and I don't think these necessarily have to happen in this order, I think it's a natural, logical progression, but confession is mentioned and that ACTS acronym. After adoring God and being reminded of who He is, it's hard not to want to confess your sin. It's almost like you start feeling like Isaiah. You see the Lord, and you say, woe is me, for I am undone. I am ruined. i got to confess my sin. I'm not beautiful. I'm not lovely, at least not without Christ. Psalm 51, 4, against you and you only have I sinned. That ought to be a regular confession that we make. Proverbs 28, verse 13 reminds us, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I love 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What an incredible reminder of just coming and adoring God and then confessing our weakness and our dependence upon Him, and specifically confessing our sin against Him. And this lends lends itself, I believe, to the third uh, letter here, T, thanksgiving, right? Psalm 95 is a psalm of thanksgiving and a song of praise. Let us come into the presence, His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him, with songs of praise. Paul writes about a thankful heart in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always. Colossians 3:17. and whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. You know, typically when we think about Colossians 3:17, we think about just doing everything, everything we do, we got to do it for the glory of God. And that's good. But don't forget the verse also says, give thanks to God in everything you do. every single thing you do, you should be thanking God. God, thank you for the strength. Thank you for this job. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for this opportunity. In the midst of my suffering on this day, I'm going to give you thanks for the opportunity to grow and look to Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God. Right? What is God's will for your life? It's just to thank Him. Spend some time in gratitude, not just at Thanksgiving time, right? but all times to be thanking Him. And then last, we see supplication. The word supplication is found 18 times in the New Testament, only twice here in Ephesians, both times in this very verse. This is the same thing as making petitions. It's appropriate and even imper- an imperative that we make our petitions known to God, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew 6:11, he told them to pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. That's a petition. A little bit later in the next chapter of Matthew 7, verse 7, he tells us we should be asking, ask and it will be given unto you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you supplication is hinted at in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Asking God is not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God. It's part of the essence of prayer. And sure, He may not answer every single prayer you offer, but why not take a shot? I mean, I love that about my kids. My kids know that I have the means, and the ability to grant their requests. Hey, Dad, can we go out for ice cream? Now, I may not always say yes to that, but sometimes I do, which keeps them asking regularly. Hey, Dad, can we go out to ice cream? Hey, Dad, can I stay up 30 more minutes? Hey, Dad, can we go out to eat over at this restaurant? Hey, Dad, can we watch this movie? They keep asking. They keep asking. They keep asking. And what I'm saying is I love that about children because we've lost a sense of that because we think, man, I don't want to bother God. I don't want to bother. What if he says no? So I might as well not even supplicate or make my petition known to God because he could shoot me down. And I'm saying we got to return to that simple faith like a child and just take a shot. God, would you please, for your own glory, provide a new job for me so I could provide for my family? Would you please, for your glory, save my neighbor? Would you Would you keep my kids safe? Would you allow me to honor you today? God, would you provide the money needed to build this new building? God, we're just going to take a shot. You you may answer no, but you might answer yes. And we want to pray in the spirit in accordance with your will. But we want to pray and ask God, don't you dare think for a second somehow God is irritated by your prayer. Don't think that, well, I can't come back with that same petition because if my children did that to me with ice cream five times in one night, pretty soon I'm going to say, hush up. Stop asking me. The answer is no. But God's not like that. He delights in your petition. He demands your petition. He's glorified by your petition. Continue to petition God in prayer. Do you have a variety of prayers in your prayer life? I think the best way to have a variety of prayers in your prayer life is to take your prayers from the scripture. And as the scriptures vary, from adoration to confession to thanksgiving and to, to uh, supplication, then you can also be varied in your prayer so that you don't get stuck in a rut and kind of pray the same prayers in the same way at the same time all the time. You need some variety, all kinds of prayers in your life. And so as we wrap up this morning, let me just speak to you for a moment. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to just say to you, you can pray anytime you like. At any moment, you can call out to God. But if you're remaining in your unrepentant state before God, don't necessarily expect him to come alongside you in a whim to answer your prayer. He may do that, but he might not do that. And he certainly shares with us in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Let me invite you today, if you're not a believer, that before you just began to petition God left and right, that first you would give your life to Christ that you would turn from your sin, that on this day you would believe in a God who hears your prayers, but a God who also is concerned in your broken heart, that you would acknowledge your condition before God is nothing, that only through Christ can you be saved, only through turning from your sin and turning to the grace of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for sinners like you and like me, can you ever really enter into real prayer life. God desires that you would make that request of Him on this very day in the sense of that you would repent of your sins and that you would hope in God, that you would look to Christ, that you would be saved. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, let me just say that you have something way better in your arsenal than a Gustav gun. You have this secret weapon of prayer that you can use immediately, at any moment, at any time. Take advantage of this prayer weapon that God has given to you, and it will never be scrapped. It will never be taken away from you. And so the take home here, just a couple of application points. Do you see prayer as more of a discipline or as a delight? Do you see prayer as more of a discipline or as a delight. Hopefully we're moving from one to the other. At times we have to say it's a discipline because there's times none of us feel like praying, but as we begin to pray and adore Christ for who he is, hopefully the delight begins to take over and we begin to resonate with the truth of our our loving, patient God. Number two, are your prayers varied or are you stuck in a rut? If your prayers are varied, consider using, uh, if they're not varied, consider using ACTS or whatever acronym you desire. Mainly, just turn to the Scripture and begin to pray God's Word back to Himself, and then at that moment, at least you'll know you're praying in the Spirit, and you're praying in Jesus' name. Last, how do you stay alert with all perseverance in your prayer life? We'll talk about that more next week, being alert, keeping alert in prayer, and then praying not only for yourself, but for all the saints. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just come to you in this passage, these four alls of prayer. God, we're moved this morning by just simple reminders, profound thoughts that we're to be praying in the morning, praying in the afternoon, praying in the evening, praying at all times with all kinds of prayers, praying in the Spirit. God, we want to be those that are faithful. And so this morning, God, encourage us, that you desire to be petitioned by us so that we would get a right framework of how to approach you and how to be faithful and diligent and how to put our hope and our trust in a God who answers prayers. And at the same time, God, help us to remove all iniquity and to get rid of all ongoing unrepentant sin that you would hear more clearly our cries to you. Help us as a church to be a praying church. And I pray it would start in our homes, in our marriages, and in our parenting, with our friends and in our small groups. Father, we pray that you would be magnified as we consider how we could do a better job resting in the finished work of the cross and yet striving to spend more time more faithfully in prayer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.